ladies and idiots. This is the Fade to Gray podcast. Y'all that just got close to God, then God would have healed your marriage. Maybe, but maybe God didn't put us together. Maybe it was just, you know, that's us thing, you know? I had a pretty nasty divorce, and I kind of crawled into a whiskey bottle for about a year and a half, specifically. How often do you masturbate? What do you think about the Fade to Gray podcast? It sucks. Nice. We out. We out. Welcome back, Fade to Gray family and friends. This is your boy, Omar, over here at the Fade to Gray Roundtable, and it's my joy to bring you this week's episode. Now, we are episode three into our relationship series, if you guys have been following along. And for some of you guys have noticed, the last two episodes of Fade to Gray have been a little gay. <laughs> Some very controversial topics maybe have come up, whether it be Amanda's usage of the F word or stories about heterosexual men having orgies with other gay men while their wives watched. It's definitely been controversial this week. It might be what you guys may consider a little more vanilla. Our guest is a personal friend of the family. He is a musician, singer, songwriter, all around amazing dude. Mr. Tyler Wicks. Woke up in tears after dreaming again. Sundays are stolen by cold medicine. Whispering prayers through faith, bleeding again. Feeding my sorrows and drinking my sin. Biding my time just to get to tomorrow. My rent's due for the time that I've borrowed. I sit here closing my grip. Now, I sat down with Tyler for about an hour and a half and had a very good conversation about his latest music project, The Bottom, which can be picked up in iTunes or wherever you buy your music. To hear more about his album and his artistic process, tune in to a later episode where we release a brand new segment called Open Mic, where we speak with Tyler and other musicians about current music projects, past music projects, or you know things that may come up in the future. It could be a lot of fun, a lot of local artists, names you may be familiar with, names you may never heard of, but check them out on Open Mic. Bring us back to that moment where you were thinking, okay, this this is the right decision. This is the woman of my life, for my dreams, and and clearly I don't need this music thing. This is just a whim. Like, where how 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 was that decision made? Okay, well, I'll have to backtrack a little bit and kind of set up a lot of my identity and a lot of my hereditary stuff from my family. Um, anxiety runs in my family. Uh, I, it's I, I made a joke about it at, at BC Con, but. It, it's like um, there's a river of anxiety in my family, and I'm at the bottom of the waterfall, just kind of drowning, <laughs> just tossing and turning, trying to get some air. Um, but it's true though. Like uh, my mom really struggles with anxiety. My grandma, um, but they're Pentecostals, so <laughs> they don't believe in it. <laughs> and uh, so, like, there's this whole idea that I was brought up with is that whenever you feel like like my parents and, and my grandma, you know, when you feel like, you know, your heart's about to beat out of your chest, that's the Lord trying to deal with you. Like, it's very emotional, um, you know, and I, I know you can relate to this. Um, <laughs> just this, you know, go by your emotions, and anytime you feel that, that's, that's the Holy Spirit, you know, knocking on your heart. And so I just kind of grew up believing that. And, 
like looking back now, I realized, no, that's anxiety. My family allows, you know, it's, it's pitiful because they are ran by their anxiety because they think it's God, you know, mm. that's, there's multiple times where I know my mom is having a panic attack that she thinks it's God trying to tell her something. And unfortunately um, there's a lot of that. Like if, it, if there's fear involved or anything like that, then, you know, it's definitely the enemy. And so you rationalize or spiritualize, I should say, it's not, there's not a whole lot of rational thinking involved, but you spiritualize a lot of these like emotions and then, yeah. and then you no longer have your own emotions or your own processes. It's all like, God trying to tell you something or the devil trying to influence you in one, one way or the other. And, Definitely. Wow. So, so take that factor of my decision-making. That was what I made decisions on. I just, okay. you know, I'll completely just rational, irrational, you know, seat of the pants decisions because I felt like, Oh, the Lord's leading me to do this. And then also factor in that the church kind of lays out this recipe for young dating, courting couples. Um, you know, you just, make sure you stay strong and you don't, uh, you know, you don't have sex. And if you, as long as you get married before you have sex, then that's the way God wants it. And you're going to have a great marriage. Like I, like, you know, we were constantly fed quotes like, uh, you know, dance, dance with Jesus and he'll let the person, perfect person cut in, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, so it was just this whole built up recipe. Like they, they give you this recipe of a successful marriage, and um, my ex-wife and I, uh, well, I mean, we, we waited until we were married and uh, we were trying really hard to continue to wait until we were married. And then I felt just, you know, mostly probably anxiety because college was tough. And, uh, and but I you felt needed like, to fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. How, I mean, how, how old were you? I was 19. 19. Okay. 19 years old. And I look, look at 19 year olds now. and I'm like, they're children. Yep. I got married. And like, what was I doing? And uh, yeah, we. I didn't know. I didn't know much about myself, and you know, she didn't know much about herself. We, and but we were supposed to know each other. No, no. And it was just not an uncommon recipe for marriage disaster. How long did you? Were you guys married, or how far did you get into the relationship until you saw some real? red flags, warning signs, like, uh Oh, what's going on here? I knew it wasn't what I expected the week after we got married. Like there was no honeymoon period at all. Um, I knew I was in over my head and I had no, I had no idea how to be a husband and yeah. Um, but we, we made it three years, but it was pretty, it's pretty like I, I, by the end of it, I was really depressed and, um, I didn't, I was kind of in a state of not wanting to admit my own depression and just kind of trying to reject that notion, but I didn't want to work. I didn't want to do anything but lay in the bed and do nothing. And, uh, you know, like I wasn't holding down jobs and it was just, just, yeah, I was shitty, but what did your support system, um, like your family or your church, did they see um, cause obviously, you know, they're not going to see things at first, but when it gets to that point where there are people like noticing and what, what were the conversations be had with like people closest to you? Well, the church that I was in was not a very healthy church to be in. Um, it was a church that got a prophecy. I'd become really involved in it. I was trying to be a minister in it. Um, going to ministry classes and everything. And, uh, 
it was very, very just not mentally healthy environment. Um, I was preaching on Wednesday nights. I was a, a youth director. And um, it's just like every time I would preach, there would be something wrong with something that I said or, or something. And like I had that pressure, um, pressure of trying to go to work and stay at work because I was depressed and like just all this pressure and feeling like a failure as a husband. Uh, but I had also put a big distance between me and my family um, because they kind of saw red flags to begin with whenever I was getting married and they didn't, you know, they saw, th they really saw, you know, what it is. They're like, you know, you guys are, you're not really, don't have anything in common. You're too young to get married. And I had rejected all that and just put this big rift between me and my family. Like, you know, I don't need to listen to anything you say. I'm going to, you know, I need to get married. I know it's what God wants me to do, all this stuff. And uh, Paul, so, Paul said it himself, you know, if you're burning, you know, you don't get married. <laughs> but if you're burning with lust, then yeah. then, then, then get married. So, you know. <laughs> Old Paul. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like so my family, I got that's kind of what got the ball rolling with, you know, we probably needed to, I thought we probably needed to take a break. Um, and then that kind of rolled into getting a divorce. But uh, I was on the phone with mom, and she could tell I was depressed just by talking to me. And she's like, you should come stay with us a week or something. Like, she was worried about my safety. You know, she was afraid I was suicidal, which I was. Like, I, every day I'd drive to work, and I would think about just turning the wheel into oncoming traffic. I'm like, that would be a quick way to go, and nobody would know I was killing myself. It would look like an accident. And I thought about that every day. You know, I was in a pretty bad place. Is that and, where you developed like destructive uh, behaviors, like the alcoholism stuff you said that you dealt with, or just the drinking? Were at that point, or were you not yet? Did it start I, then, or I hadn't. Um, it was after after we had split. Uh, was when that I'd never drank before. You know, I kept my nose clean pretty much in high school and everything. And um, well, I was at work. I remember, um, like man, my ex had split, and I was talking about. I was like, I can't sleep. You know, I'd slept beside the person that I loved for three years and then not having that person there, I couldn't sleep, you know, it was just, just wouldn't work. And I was talking about it at work and uh dude's like, dude, drink you, drink you something. You'll go to sleep, you know, just drink a little whiskey or something and you'll go. And I'm like, okay, I haven't tried whiskey. And first time I ever tried whiskey, I fell in love with that. Like, <laughs> and they were like, it's going to be an acquired taste. It's going to taste really bad to you. So you're going to have to get used to it. And like, I took a first drink and I'm like, where has this been my whole life? <laughs> so alcohol dependency, here we go. <laughs> so, all right. Well, that, that makes, so is there anything else you want to talk about the marriage itself before we start talking about the process of the divorce? Cause we want to get it. I want to get into that obviously and get into like what that was like. Okay. Um, Cause we, there's a really big, really big story i don't know if if you've heard it i think i've talked about it i've talked about it definitely on some church and other drugs episodes um but there's a pretty big story arc here um that i don't know if it needs to be linear and just kind of go from beginning to end or or how you want to do that so obviously like i'm curious of like what that decision was like to go ahead and say we're going to separate and then like, okay, we, we need a divorce. And, and I know from already telling me 
of the spiral spiraling and the the whiskey that you know you didn't see it as a good thing for years and so um yeah so i just I just take us through that thought process and how because that couldn't have been an easy decision to make it was yeah it was it was yeah it was like um i grew up uh my my dad went around and my mom she raised me um and she she's very my mom's very outspoken very um uh she, she kind of comes across as shy but she's really not I, i'm eventually going to get a polar bear like my mom hates tattoos we're going to tattoo a polar bear because the polar bear is the most unassuming bear of all of them like you you know you got coca-cola polar bears and people think they're cute and cuddly but really they're no <laughs> they're really vicious you know and they you know they can really do some damage um that's my mom to me i love her and uh but she's very she's very uh she, you know she can get really angry especially when i was a child and um i grew up with this coping mechanism for conflict or um for you know altercations to just shut down and start apologizing right just just don't just don't make it worse. Just go ahead and start apologizing no matter what, and it'll be over quicker. And uh, so that was growing up. And when I got older and a teenager, I had these, you know, like teenage boy anger, ish, you know, management problems. <laughs> I would just, you know, apologize to her and then go up in my room and like, you know, scream in a pillow or punch the wall, you know. That was just, you know, I know we got the whole Kyle joke phenomenon going on, <laughs> but I mean, that was kind of my coping strategy. I just, you know, it is what it is. Um, and uh, so I entered into this, this marriage with these very immature ways of dealing with conflict. Um, and that's the, the first thing I did is whenever she would get mad, it was like I said, first week we were married, she was... She was mad. My stepdad at the time wasn't really, I didn't, I, I don't consider him at the time to be a good example of a husband at all. He would come home from work and just watch TV and, you know, sit in his chair and do nothing. And he was really rude to my mom. And um, that's kind of what I had to go off of. And so I would come home from work and I would just sit and I'd watch TV or I'd play video games and didn't have much to say. And so she was angry that I wasn't helping. And first thing I start doing is apologizing, you know, like she's mad. Okay. Apologize. So I'm apologizing. I'm sorry. You know, I'll do better. And then I didn't mean that next week I, I'm coming home just doing whatever I want. And she's like, you know, she brings it back up. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll do better. And there becomes this pattern and she's realizing the pattern. And so she asked to go to a um, marriage counseling. So we go to marriage counseling and she's telling them about what's going on. And the marriage counselor, I remember he was like, you know, you're keeping a part of yourself from your wife. You know, you're you're shunning that conflict. He's like, you know, arguments and debates, that's all part of marriage. You're learning each other. You're learning each other's heart. That's that's part of your heart whether you know it or not, you know. You're keeping that part of yourself from your wife. You really need if you if you have an opinion, if you have a pushback, say it, you know, voice your opinion and and reach a conclusion, reach a compromise. You're growing together. Okay, so uh, I start doing that, and it took a long time. It wasn't just a switch I could turn on, but I started trying to learn to 
you know, to talk back and to actually voice my opinion and to say things. And it was like the more that I learned to do that, the more she learned to kind of one up me, you know, because it was a gradual process. She became more and more vocal, more and more, you know, loud and exaggerated or, you know, she was learning me. And I, I mean, basically she would get me, I would come out of my shell and then I would eventually go back in. And it's like, there was a point where I resorted to the second coping strategy. And this is what's going on through my mind. Whenever these um, events would happen, she knew exactly which, you know, I mean, not making it, I'm not accusing anything. I don't want to do anything like, but she would get be really angry and be getting up in my face and I would be just trying to resolve it, trying to talk. And I would get to a point where, okay, I'm really angry right now and I would never, ever hit you. So I'm going to hit this wall. That's what was going on through my head. And it wasn't until afterwards, like now, and, and I've, I've talked about this and it's hard not for me to get emotional talking about this. Looking back, I understand how she could have com- received a completely different message from that. And what she likely received was this wall could be your fucking head. You know, you know what I mean? Like totally different perspectives. And even though I, I would never like, I I didn't like hurting her feelings. Just if I said something that hurt her feelings, that crushed me, you know, it just, I hated it. Um, so yeah, I would never, ever physically harm her. And, um, that happened a few times and uh, I could see that she was visibly shaking. Anytime I would snap and hit a wall or something. Uh, one time I had a kitchen chair and I just kind of threw it on the ground, just, just in rage, you know, and I walked out of the room. Um, and uh, this, I mean, it likely scared the shit out of her, man. And I didn't really see that then because I knew my intentions weren't, you know, I wasn't trying to harm her. It was just like, just this release of anger and um we uh i started getting depressed we're back back where we were um was depressed from the pressures of trying to be a minister and then the not very good mentally healthy church environment we were in the pressures of being depressed and going to work and and i would i mean there was times that i didn't have to work i would drive to i worked in madison tennessee i drive and just go up there and see a movie. I'd say I had, you know, I'm going to work, but I, I was off that day. I would just go see a movie just to not exist for a while, just to be off the grid and not have to deal with the pressures of everything. So I'd see movies I didn't care about. I didn't want to, I, you know, movies I didn't want to see and just to unplug. And um, I, uh, my, my, schedule my wife started looking at my schedule and seeing that there were days I said I worked that I wasn't working and she thought I was cheating on her um which understandably so I understand I would you know it's, it's what I would assume too I'm sure and um so we there was just all this pressure and I had talked to my mom and she's like you should just come come stay with us for a while um so I was like, okay. So I packed a small bag. It was a little Aeropostle duffel bag um, of clothes. And I was just going to go to their house for a week. And I called my wife and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to mom's for a week. I think we just need some time to kind of 
you know, think about things. And, you know, I think that we're just, we stress each other out right now and we just need to, we need to be away from each other for just a, maybe a week or so and see how that works. See if it helps us any. And she's like, so you're not coming home. And I was like, not, not tonight, you know, but you know, like maybe in a week or so. And she's, when she, she says fine, and when she said fine, I could tell she was crying. She said fine and hung up the phone. And I could hear her crying, like just that quivering voice. It tore me all to pieces, and I went back. I drove, turned around and drove back. And um, she calls me on her way home from work and asks to meet at our pastor's house. So I'm like, okay. So I go to the pastor's house, and my pastor had all these questions. He's like, you know, you got to lay this out on the table. It seems like you've got secrets. And I was like, well you know, I, I'm not cheating. I'm really, I think I'm really depressed. I'm going to the movies just to not exist. You know, um, it's like therapy, I guess. And, you know, this is all this is going on. And, uh, I was like, you know, at, at the time I was really addicted to pornography and that was, that's a big deal. You know, um, I was, uh, I was a minister and I was preaching against pornography, but addicted to it myself. And so I just kind of laid all this out on the table and um and my pastor was like you guys need to go home and talk about it and work it out and see where you guys need to go from here and i'm like okay and so we were going to leave and i go to leave and and she was like hey i'm gonna i'll be i'll be there in a little while i'll be right behind you i was like okay because we drove separate cars anyway so i drive home and it was one hour two hour three hours she wasn't there and uh that's when i started getting worried and I remember going through going through my mind. I was praying. I was praying, Lord, please don't let me lose her. Please don't, please don't let me lose this marriage, please. And every hour that would go by that she wasn't there, I would become more desperate. And what kept going through my mind was I just kept thinking of David praying that the child wouldn't die. And I kept thinking the child died though. The child died. And I, I remember I had our wedding picture i was clutching it i took it off the wall and i was walking around with it just praying and crying and i get a knock on the door i thought it was her i go to the door and it was my pastor it wasn't her and as soon as it was as soon as i saw that it was my pastor and it wasn't her i fell apart and i just i grabbed him and i embraced him you know and i was, I was just crying on his shoulder and he was the coldest i've ever seen that man he said, you need to get it together, man. You need to pull yourself together. He had no emotion. And I was like, okay. And and I just kind of straightened up, you know, wiped my tears. And he come in and he said, um, she wants you to go to your mom's for a week like you'd planned. Um, she wants you to, you know, uh, she said she also wants you to give me her car key. She wants you to give me your house key. And I need to take the church key from you. And I was like, okay, you know, at the, I, I was an emotional mess and I was just agreeing to anything. And at that point, nothing seemed really odd. Like it was just like, okay, whatever I need to do, whatever she wants, you know, I'll do anything that I can to work this out. I had been brought down to the lowest point of my desperation, you know, whatever I will do, whatever she asked. And so I packed a bag and I went to my mom's and, uh, she called me a week later and she's like, I, here's what I want to do. I want you to move out for three months. And she's like, I want you to move completely out, get an apartment and, um, and just 
let us kind of have some alone time and just be separate for a while. I was like, okay. And so I was like, you know, if that's what you, if that's what you want, I'll do that. And so, um, she tells me, this is when things started being weird or I thought were odd. She said, I'm going to put your stuff on the front porch and I'm going to leave and you can come and get it. And then let me know whenever you're gone and you have the stuff so that I can come back. And that's when I was like, well, why? And what, what are you talking about? She's like, this is, it's like, that's just what, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm like, okay. So, um, stuff was on the porch, went and got it. I let her know. And it wasn't too long after that that she calls me and tells me, she's like, I think that we should date again for a year. She's like, this is what it's going to take for me to trust you again, is if we go back. Because we, we waited we waited until our wedding day to even kiss. Our first kiss was on our wedding day. Um, and she said that was part of it. She's like, we, just, we shouldn't kiss or anything or be alone together at all for a year. And, you know then, you know, that's what it's going to take for me to trust you again. And that's when I drew the line. And I was like, no offense, but that's absolutely ridiculous. I don't know what's going on, but that's insane. There's no way that we're going to work this out and get closer together if we're further apart. I don't understand what's going on. Like, are you talking to somebody? What's going on, you know? And she's like, it's, you know, the conversation was going and she basically gave me an ultimatum. She's like, it's either that or divorce. And I was like, I guess it's divorce then. And so she hung up the phone and like, then we were texting back and forth and she's like, is that what you really want? And more I thought about it and more I'm like, yeah, I think that maybe that is what we need. Maybe we do need to go our separate ways if that's, if that's the only, <laughs> you know, if that's what you want to do. And, um. You know, because there's no way that I was like, there's no way I'm going back to Dayton for a year. And um, so she's like, are, are you going to, I was like, I'll pay for the divorce. That's fine. I wouldn't ask you to do that. I'll do that. And so I was going to get a lawyer. It was going to be uncontested. And, you know, as long, cause we didn't have kids together. We, you know, we didn't own a house together. We were just, you know, we just, we're going to go our separate ways. It was going to be like 600 bucks. I don't know. It wasn't going to be much. And, uh, she, I, I got a hold of the lawyer and I had it all lined up and I texted her. I was like, so if I, I don't, cause the lawyer told me that I would pay him the fee. And then if she didn't sign the papers, it was basically going to be for nothing. So he's like, so make sure she's going to sign, make sure it's, you know, that she agrees. Cause that's what an uncontested divorce is. That she's going to agree to this. And so I texted her. I said, so you're going to sign the papers, right? And she wouldn't text back. I'm like, confirm with me that you're going to sign the papers because I have to confirm that before I do this, before I put up this money and she wouldn't, would not respond. And it was like, I don't know how long, cause it's, it's been a while, but I got served papers. She went to a lawyer and it was contested. She wanted to take it to court. So I had to lawyer up. I went, go, I went to like the shittiest lawyer I could find <laughs> just to get a, you know, an uncontested divorce. So I went and got the most expensive lawyer I could find because I didn't know what was going on or what she was trying to do and uh, took out two loans to, to pay for the lawyer. And um, the uh, they were um, he, he was trying to keep it from going to court because he told me, he's like, you're, you know, I'm not a cheap lawyer, but I'm trying to do you a favor because you two, you don't have kids. There's no reason for this to go to court. There's no reason for it to be contested. He's like, I'm going to try to get them to settle. 
I was like, okay. And so he reached out for a settlement. And the settlement was that I took all of the debt that we had accumulated. Um, and also, like, she wanted a $1,500 lump sum, I think. And she wanted my dog. She put that in the papers, which is fine. My dog liked her more than it ever liked me anyway. <laughs> and uh, But there's just that settlement. I know I'm getting into some boring details here. No, you're good. Keep going. Um. I said, I was like, that's fine. That's that works. If that's what you want, then that's that's what I'll do. And so I settled. And I remember the day that I signed those papers. The day that I drove to the lawyer's office and signed that paper. It was like it felt like the most important, and maybe uh, possibly, you know, it's, I was like, these. This is either the best decision of my life or the worst decision of my life right now in this moment, right here. It all hinges on this. You know, that's the pressure that that goes along with it. I don't care if you've been married, you know, to someone for three years or what, or if less, there's just so much pressure that just goes along with that decision. When I signed this dotted line, there's no turning back. And, um, it was just like throwing away all this progress. Like Louis CK talks about it. And I don't good Lord. Louis CK is not a role model in the least, but he says this thing, he says, getting married, getting married is like stepping in a time machine, but it's a really shitty time machine because it takes the exact amount of time to get <laughs> to the other side. <laughs> He's like, you've just been, you just realize you've done nothing there. You've made no progress. Um, you've actually regressed over that period of time in a lot of ways. And then here you are, you know, on the other side. And it's true. Like, felt like all this progress and all this work that we had done together, you know, we built this, you know, even though it was a shitty marriage, we'd built a lot. We worked a lot on what we had. We were just scrapping it and going right back to scratch. And here I was in the same place that I was before I ever met her. And it was a huge deal. It was like a Thanos snap, you know, it was a punch in the gut. You know, here we go. Everything's gone. And, um, I remember I was going to drive to, I was like, I, I, I was going to drive to Gallatin, buy a gun, and then drive somewhere way off to make sure, because my biggest fear of committing suicide was that my family would somehow find me and that they would see me. I didn't want that. You know, I had, my little brother and sister were really young at the time, and I just did not want that. You know, I just, whatever I had to do to keep them from seeing that, or I just, I, you know, my biggest reason for not committing suicide was the people that I leave behind, you know? And so I was going to drive far enough away that by the time they would ever get there, that they would have my body cleaned up or something, you know? Um, and, uh, the logic doesn't work out. I know that they still had to identify the body, but at that time, that's what I was trying to do. Um, and I was on my way. I hadn't got to Gallatin yet. And I get a text, a random text from two really good friends. And they were just like, we just want to tell you we loved you. And it was just a random. Like, I talked to them later and they were just thinking about me at that time. They knew that I was, you know, going through some stuff. And they just said, we just want to tell you we loved you. And that was enough to snap me back into reality. And to just, whoa, what am I doing? What am I about to do right now? You know? And so I turned around and, and came home and... um yeah, it was it was a ridiculous decision, um, and there were a lot of pieces that didn't make sense, and that I did not find out until about a year and a half, two years later, 
I quit drinking because <laughs> all that time I was just suppressing it. Don't think about it. Don't deal with it. And um, I woke up on my buddy's couch one morning, covered in my own vomit, and I had a bruise on my arm that looked like a hand because he had to drag me from his Jeep into the house, and he dragged me by, his, by my forearm. And he had to grip it so tight that he put a hand-shaped bruise on my forearm. And I was just, for the first time, I saw myself in the mirror, you know, the proverbial mirror. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, this is out of control. And um, I was like, I got to quit. I just, I knew, I knew that that wasn't who I was. And I knew it wasn't who I was supposed to be. And I didn't want to be that, you know. So I just made the decision, I've got to stop. And when I stopped drinking, all of those emotions and all of those, everything that I'd been suppressing, it came back like a tidal wave and just like washed over me and I was just swept under the current, you know. And um, so I texted her and I'm like, I was, I was stupid. I was like, I should have, I should have been a better husband. I should have, you know, I was so immature. I was just, you know, just pouring my heart out. And I was like, is there any way that, you know, maybe we could maybe have another chance or even just to be friends? You know, I just, I'm so sorry, you know. And I texted her that and sent it and didn't get a response. Um, and I called her dad. I was going to try to talk to him. Maybe I thought maybe she'd change her number. And her dad tells me, he's like, um, what, whatever, everything that happened is your fault. You did that. And I can't remember his exact words, but it was something along the lines of that. You know, you, you really hurt her and, um, you're going to have to live with that. And like, he gets off the phone and I was like, okay. And so I was like, okay, and then I guess I'll leave it alone about a week later I got a summons to court cop knocks on my door supposed to appear in Allen County Court um, that day and I didn't even like when the cop got there I didn't even have time to make it to the courthouse he's like you're gonna have to call up there and let them know you're gonna be late I'm like are you serious this is the first time hearing of this and you're telling me oh yeah you're gonna be late too like really so I called up there and they pushed it back and so when I get there She's there, and my former pastor was there, and I, she, we, I go up to the stand, and she's like, um, she tells the judge that I was abusive in our marriage, and that I had been texting her, and she felt threatened, and uh, she said she was pretty sure that I was driving by her house real slow, which I hadn't been down that road since we were still married. You know, so I don't know where that's coming from. But I know, like, if she was scared, she might have saw a car that looked like mine and stuff. Or I was driving a truck at the time. Um, but it was like, that was the first I'd even had the thought. You know, that was a total shock. That, oh, whoa, I'm in court right now and my ex-wife is accusing me of abuse. And she's saying that I was abusive and she's saying that she feels threatened by my text. And I told the judge, I was like... I wasn't threatening at all. I was just trying to see if there was another chance. I said, I, I said, I'll show you the text. Like you can look at my phone. You know, it wasn't anything threatening at all. And he's like, I believe you. I don't think you've meant anything wrong, but she's obviously afraid. So he put a restraining order on me for three years. And I had to go to anger management. Um, and like, it was like, just 25 bucks a week and I had to drive to Bowling Green and I know it don't sound like much but driving to Bowling Green once a week and $25 once a week it just it sucks and then I was in class and you know 
there's all these people that like lost it on people at their jobs and beat them with pipe wrenches and stuff. And I'm sitting there and they're like, what, why are you in here for? I was like, I didn't do nothing. But my ex-wife is, you know, said she was scared of me in front of a judge. And like, they're like, Oh yeah, that's what we all say. And I'm like, no, for real. But it was just so, it was such an odd thing. And, um, I didn't really, I, you know, it's just, it's odd that even at that time I couldn't see her perspective. Um, I didn't see that at all. Um, and I even wrote, I did a couple of other albums where, uh, you know, wrote songs about the divorce and about, you know, everything that went on and kind of had a really uppity attitude about it, you know, like, um, I don't know. Like it, I, I just felt like it was all her and that I didn't really do, I, I knew that I was depressed and that I was shitty during that time, but I didn't really feel like I did that much wrong. And this album is really coming back to understanding, oh shit, there's another perspective that, you know, even if I, even if I can tell the story and it, you know, wasn't abuse from my perspective, if that scared the shit out of her, you know, if she was truly afraid of me then that was abuse she had to live afraid of her husband i can't imagine like it's so hard to me to think about even even if i didn't mean it that way her going to sleep beside me and being afraid of me that's awful that's awful to think about i can't i just it's hard to think about you know but that's true i think tyler's point he just made here is very interesting and worth stopping and pausing and reflecting I didn't respond at the time, but after walking away from the conversation, just thinking how important of a point that was. And basically what I'm hearing Tyler say is something that is important to learn in any relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship, a platonic friendship, or a familial relationship, which familial is such an interesting word to say. Anyway, it's, it's that of being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes and seeing their perspective, hearing what they're trying to communicate to you, and seeing how you may be being portrayed in their eyes. This particularly stood out to me because it was a hard lesson for me to learn, and something that once I did, made me a much better husband, father, friend, or even son. It's one of those things you have to do as you get older. It's something very important in every relationship. It's something important as an individual that we're able to kind of look introspectively um, at ourselves and how our actions may be affecting others. Seeing how people are reacting to the things that we say or how we're saying them and possibly realize that maybe what I'm saying is right but how it's being delivered or being received is all wrong and it really blurs the lines of communication and it takes a lot of humility. Um, I know speaking from experience to be able to step back and and recognize even though you may feel completely right in the moment that you may be 100% wrong and so it was very important and, and awesome it was very awesome to hear Tyler say how looking back from his marriage he can see that his wife was afraid of him during the time he knows that he would never hurt her but the actions that he was doing around the house were portraying something different so good on you Tyler for learning your mistake and hopefully for the rest of us we can learn before it gets too late and be able to look ourselves in the mirror and, and see how our actions are affecting others. Again, <laughs> this is um, something I am still learning um, here at Fade to Gray. So thanks for bearing with me. 
and let's get back to the show. What was the aha moment then for you that made you change your perspective that allowed you to make room for, you know, what she was going through and maybe, maybe what her perspective was and not uh, me versus you. But when did you fade to gray on, on all that? I was actually, I was actually talking to somebody and actually telling the story to him. I was opening up uh, to a girl that I was talking to and um, was talking about it and like in the middle of telling the story, it was like I saw it completely differently. So the the change had probably happened in between times that I had thought about it or had told the story, but that particular time I understood it and I was t- and it was the first like I was I had told the story or, or talked about it quite a bit and was telling it this time and I was just in tears. I was just because I re- I saw it you know clear. Whoa, you know that's. It, two different perspectives you know that that was absolutely abuse from her perspective and it's just yeah it changed me um last question about the divorce growing up in a christian background christian environment you know the um support system like it did sound it sounded really one-sided like obviously i'm only hearing one side from you but as far as um your pastor and how and how we handle that situation does not sound very pastoral at all. I mean, that's the type of stuff that obviously could send anybody into a deconstruction of faith. When you, you know, you put a man like that on a pedestal, you're looking at him like, you know, this is like your path to God. You're trust, you're trusting this man with your, I mean, like your marriage and your, you know, everything he has to say. And it just seems like he had zero time for anything that you had to say or listen to your side of the story. And it really sucks that, so often churches get involved in, in people's marriages like that and, and taking yes, sides. But, and, but and so, so I, quickly I wanna, and how I want to do, do uh, my perspective totally. Cause there's two perspectives of that as well. My perspective is totally because I, I may, I was, I was closer to this man than any other pastor I've ever had. And very likely any pastor that I ever will. Because since then, like that, that, this whole, that whole period was the catalyst of my deconstruction, obviously. Um, but so I've got so many trust issues now. It's so hard for me to actually put that much trust into a pastor again. Um, I, uh, I mean, we ate lunch together all the time. Like the, he was, he was like a, a brother to me. Like we were like brothers, like we were really close he was my youth pastor before. He was both of our youth pastors. He was my, my ex-wife's too, and he was actually her youth pastor before he was mine. I, I visited their church camp, and that's how me and my ex-wife went, uh, met. Um, and uh, so he was close to both of us, but me and him really bonded, and then for that to happen, it was it was a big deal, totally. But that's my perspective. But honestly, putting myself in his shoes, we were both his youth. You know, We were both – he was close to both of us. And then here is a young girl telling him that her husband was abusive. And he's, I mean, just, he's going to go into father mode. You know, he's going to put himself into, if if that was his daughter, um, what would he do? You know? Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it. It's it's still like two people and two sides. And to be, for somebody to get that involved in, you know, like, like you said, he was yeah. he was your father figure too. It wasn't just it wasn't just her father figure, and so and to be that cold and calloused and 
like decisive about it. I mean, it's hard for anybody to go through. I mean, obviously nobody's perfect and you can't put that much. That's just the problem yeah. with putting anybody on a pedestal because whenever they, whenever they fail or mess up or do something to hurt somebody else, it's that much more pain involved. But I was more, this question like beyond the man, just the whole like Christianity in general has a stigma on divorce. And so, um, and with, this album that you just released recently and kind of like, you know, maybe an, an upswing that you're on now, would you look back and you're able to look back and tell these stories? Would you say that div divorce was the right, yeah. the right thing to do? Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I, I've, of course I've been in the, the opposite opinion of that. I, for a long time, I was like, if I had to do over, I would just have just tried harder. I'd have just dug my heels in and, and stayed, but the situation was what was bad. And like, equally because like with the two different perspectives what was going on with in my head was not what was going on with her we were on two different separate pages we would have driven each other further apart i mean i think it's inevitable looking back we would have just pushed each other away we were so different and there's the god factor a lot of people is like no but you know if you know what god puts together let no man put asunder um and like you know if y'all have just got close to God, then God would have healed your marriage. Maybe, but maybe God didn't put us together. Maybe it was just, you know, us, us thing, you know, maybe that's really, and, and you say, what if all day, but I think ultimately we would have, we would have just pushed each other further apart. Um, you know, and we're, I, we haven't talked since all of this, but I'm nearly certain we're even more different now than we were then. Um, I've, deconstructed and i think she's likely constructed <laughs> more and uh so uh, all right well we've been we've been talking for about an hour now um you've given me some really really good stuff um but i want to try to get some kind of pointed questions uh just about dating and then about sex and you kind of like whatever comes to to your to your mind um you don't have to expand too far but you don't have to like give just like one word okay. yes or no answers or anything either so like just kind of um uh let's see let's uh go with first uh dating um you got divorced when you were if i do my math correctly 22 years I old turned 23 yeah 23 23 23 no, it was i was sucks, so, i sorry. was <laughs> we got married in december and i was about to be 20 but I was still not team when we got married. So I was, I was already 23 when we got divorced. Right on. And then you are how old now? 28. Okay. So dating apps in 2019 for a 20 something year old. What's, what's that well, like? Um, I'm sure for some 20 something year olds, it works it really does. Um, I'm kind of different. Um, I've kind of recently discovered a lot about myself and I think I identify as a demisexual. Um, uh, so yeah. So like there's, I, I'm, okay. I'm naive. So, Explain that. Asexual. It's, it's like a sub thing stemming. It's a stem off of the asexual thing. Um, asexual is like, you know, they're not necessarily physically, um, aroused often like it's very very uncommon for an asexual to actually be aroused or to actually want sexual activity um demisexual is odd it's like half like that's what demi means is like half half the time sexual 
Uh, it's a very crude way to explain it, I guess. But for me, it's I don't fall in love easy at all. And it's like I realized that I, I was only falling in love with girls that were my friends already. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this? And so I would try to date and like nothing, nothing. Like I would feel nothing for anybody. Um, nothing would happen. No sparks, nothing. And it would like I would recluse at some point very soon after I would start dating somebody. I would recluse. I would shut down and there would be no emotional connection. And uh, I tried to, you know, engage in casual sexual activity and it just wouldn't happen. I'd even, I even got to the point where I had a girl over and we were super into it. I was into it and we had our clothes off and then all of a sudden gone. I didn't have any. And this this casual uh, dating social activity that was all through the dating apps. Then at that point, because it was you realizing that it wasn't working with your friends, or was that still your friends that you were trying to? I had tried have to, benefits with. So I was always trying to like date and stuff with the dating apps and stuff. But this one in particular, this where what it, when it had got to the point of almost, um, I mean, we had our clothes off. It was that was somebody that I had been friends with, but wasn't a close friend. It wasn't like that. There was no emotional feelings there. Um, but so sure. I was questioned and like, I guess, you know, I, I got friends that a couple of friends that are ace and um, didn't even know that demisexual was a thing. And then whenever I looked it up, I was like, oh, my goodness, like, I relate to that so much. It's like the there is no sexual activity possibility unless emotional feelings are there. Like I can't, I'm not even capable of having sex with someone unless I feel really strongly about them emotionally. Um, and, uh, and I, cause I was like, well, I mean, I was super into it up until a certain point, but there's also like I read on there, it's fleeting. Like you're, you'll be aroused and then it's all of a sudden gone because it's just like the realization that you're not emotionally connected to that person. Um, so dating apps for me don't really work because the casual sex, a lot of people do it for that. It's, that that wouldn't work for me, and then also just dating someone that I don't know, I I'm I recluse, and then partner that with anxiety that I've already had that I already have. <laughs> it's just like it just never worked. Um, like it, there were every single time I would maybe think something was possible, and then it would, it would just gone. I would recluse, like total shutdown. Um, and the girl that I'm dating now, like we've been friends for quite a while. So it's working out, but yeah, tenders, not, not my cup of tea. So I heard you mentioned that you're dating now. So first of all, congratulations. Um, uh, how many serious relationships have you had since your divorce? This would be number two. Um, <laughs> yeah. number two. And it's funny. Like I, it was about three years after my divorce, I had a serious relationship and then it's been three years since then, roughly. Um, so that's interesting. Um, I guess. You're on a three-year cycle. <laughs> Just, but like, at least you're getting smarter. For you real, didn't marry right? the second time around. <laughs> <laughs> We're right on. So, so that's cool. Congratulations. That's awesome. It's always exciting. And good luck with that. Um, so how long have you known this girl now? And, and how did you decide that you were ready or you okay. wanted to enter so, a relationship? First time I met her. We were in high school, and uh, I was playing in the worship band, and uh, we played at her church. She was the drummer at her church, 
and I was checking out the cute drummer girl, you know, like I was like, wow, she, she's super cute. Like a little Meg White up there, you know, like <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm going to talk to her like as soon as service is over. And then like, I'm walking over to talk to her and she's holding hands with the dude. I'm like, wow, shit, you know? So that was it. And, uh, but like her <laughs> church was in the, um, in the community I grew up in. So like I'd seen her here and there and stuff, but we went to do two different schools. She went to a different school. Um, but so we became friends on Facebook a mm, year ago, I guess. And she was dating somebody. And, um, but I like, she would, like, I'd, you know, like her memes and, you know, comment on her stuff and all that stuff. And um, we had messages back and forth a little bit, but I think I was like, you know, I, you know, you got a boyfriend, so I'm going to kind of like not, I'm going to, not message you and I don't, I don't know how it worded it wasn't that awkward <laughs> but um i was like this <laughs> i think you're i think you're pretty but i, like I, I decided to just kind of like back off because she had a boyfriend and uh she um but she she was dating a guy and um it was about a month or so ago month and a half i guess she hit me up and uh we were talking and i was i the you know, small talk. I was like, so how you been? She's like, ah, just in the single life. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay. You know, the <laughs> green light. And so we were talking and I eventually asked her out. And, um, it's funny because, um, I, <laughs> we went out once and then we hung out a couple of times and then like I reclused. I was like, shit, it's all over again. Here we go. And I had the conversation. I was like, you know, I just, I'm not feeling anything. Uh, you know, I think we should just be friends, and it sucked, and I literally felt like, because she had feelings for me, really strong, you know, and um, she told me that, and she said, she even told me, she said, I had feelings for you when I was dating <laughs> the other guy, but, you know, I was trying to give him a chance, and uh, so it sucked, and I, lit I felt like I had killed somebody, like, that's the amount of guilt, and how, like, it just felt so wrong, I even wrote a song about it, um, I, me and Blake Bays have a little uh, rock band called Scott Loves Flowers, by the way. Um, so we got more music coming. But I wrote a song about it called Beautiful Dead. <laughs> it's really dark. It's a really dark metaphor. But that's the way I felt. I felt like I had murdered somebody because I had just, you know, shut down her love, you know, her feelings. Because I just wasn't emotionally capable. And um, <laughs> I, I guess it was a couple of weeks after that I just was feeling like I well, I needed to give it another chance. And I heard a Copeland song um that really like made me think twice. It's um uh, in her arms you'll never starve. I don't know if you've heard that one. But that really like whoa, like it it just kind of put things into perspective. And uh I hit her up and I wish we 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 were friends anyway. We were talking anyway. I was like, "Hey, I think we should give this another chance." And I was completely open ever since then so it's the right thing to just give it another shot because like got no reservations like we're we're the same person we got all so much in common she's like we're like the male and female equivalent of each other so it's pretty interesting i don't think i've ever had anything any i don't think i've had more in common with anybody i've ever dated so i know it's early but That's yeah <laughs> it sounds exciting no it's all very good so um congratulations that's awesome very awesome. How often do you masturbate? <laughs> uh, I would say 
I don't go more than three days, probably. <laughs> I've been, you know, single. Are you all natural or porn or <laughs> how, do you, how often do you, do you like a porn when you masturbate or is it like you like vivid imagination? I, look, I try to stick to stills, um, honestly. Uh, <laughs> like, but uh, yeah, I try not because like you go on like Pornhub or something and then it's like, I think Toby's talked about it on the BC podcast. Like, it's like this one up thing like you end up getting into weirder and weirder shit you know and it's like how did i end up looking at this and i want to like start a a a porn website where we just like rename all of the videos to something not race not racist or 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 like you feel like you're doing something horribly wrong for this eight this stage yeah, scene, you know, yeah. it's like, like you're at, you're like Googling and then you click on the next video. And now all of a sudden you're like, why am I watching like a rape video? Like, <laughs> like, it's, it's not, not like, yeah. it's like, 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 like what's going on here? Exactly. Like, I get that. Like the percentage of consensual sex on Pornhub is what? 5% of all the videos or something. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> or staged. I said yeah. stage consensual sex. Well, even the names of it, it's like, it, it's definitely named for people who have zero like self-esteem or, or zero, yeah. not self-esteem. That's not the right, zero confidence. I don't know what the word is. It's like shitty people. It's, it's like, it's definitely like worded zero for moral shitty fiber. people. Like, Carl like, threw up this, this, this white girl with the black dude looks like, and it's like, it's, just, it's no longer people. It's just like the color and the size of yeah. the dude's dick. It's yeah. like, totally. Anyway, I get that. Yeah, I try, okay. I try to do steals, but yeah, I mean, I, I used to have a pretty, pretty vivid imagination as a young man, but it just doesn't do the trick anymore. But you know, <laughs> I, I hear that man. It's all those movies you went to when you're depressed. Uh, <laughs> just describe what an orgasm feels like to you. <laughs> a few seconds of natural ecstasy. <laughs> Apparently, I have learned from uh, – in fact, I'm just going to say it because he's the editor. From, from Chris is, I mean, it can be a lot longer than a few seconds. Really? You can prolong that. Like, Is he doing apparently meth? Apparently, Chris – Is he on meth? Because I heard uh, that, that happens on I think meth. It's, I think it's yoga, yoga or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's just that or, or like tickling the sphincter. I'm kegels, not sure which one. <laughs> just kegels all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. All right, so a few seconds of of what bliss you said? A uh, uh, few seconds of natural, natural. ecstasy. <laughs> natural ecstasy. Because yeah, you got you like, can have ecstasy um, with drugs, but then or you can orgasm. <laughs> I'll take that. We'll take okay. that one. All right. Um, and and I guess the last question I'll ask, and you kind of already touched on, but. Um, does sex create intimacy for you? Because I know you said you have to have intimacy before yeah. sex, but does does sex then create more intimacy, or is it just something nice? But but all the other stuff is more important than the sex. Or... I think it's equally as important, but I think it enhances the intimacy. Um, you can only go so far until sex. Like sex takes it further, so it's intimacy enhancement. I believe. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Tyler, you're you're the man. Appreciate the man. you answering the questions. There's some there were some hard questions and you didn't hold back and so I, I appreciate you. And so there you have it, guys. Uh Mr. <laughs> Tyler motherfucking Wicks uh, with his new album The Bottom. 
This series is brought to you by our Patreon members at Fade to Gray. If you're curious about how to be a Patreon member, you can check out our website at fadetograypodcast.com and click on the support link and it'll bring you to the Patreon page where you can join for as little as a dollar a month to be part of a great community that we're building around this podcast. Very proud to be a part of it. Very encouraging each and every day to like just talk with people from around the world about it, whether it be serious matters or just having fun. Please check us out at patreon.com fade to gray podcast Tragedy's a tapestry leaves my insecurity sirens serenade me as I fall paintings of my memories all that I am left to be candlelight Nice the cannonball Fire.